Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, UCL's award-winning podcast about coronavirus and the groundbreaking, often life-saving and always fascinating research taking place right here at UCL. My name is Vivian Parry. I'm a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna and your host for the past 23 episodes. This week's episode is all about Brexit, something that on its own would have been the greatest challenge faced by the UK this century. But yes, there's competition on that dubious honours board. And of course, it's coming from Covid, now laying waste to both health and wealth worldwide. To help us understand how Brexit and Covid are intertwined, our guests this week are experts in law, maths and the social and historical sciences. The more esoteric the mix, the more happy we are. My first guest this week is Dr Uta Steiger, the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the UCL European Institute and UCL's Pro-Vice Provost for Europe. Uta researches and teaches modern European thought and has helped to shape UCL's relationship with research in Europe. More recently, she's been working on mitigating the impacts of Brexit on UCL's European collaborations. I'm also joined by Professor Christina Plaugel from the Clinical Operational Research Unit. Christina uses mathematical modelling to help improve healthcare decision processes and is a member of Independent SAGE, the group of scientists providing independent research advice on COVID-19. And last but certainly not least, I'm joined by Professor Pete Aikhout, a Professor of EU Law and Dean of the UCL Faculty of Laws. Pete is the Academic Director of the UCL European Institute and a leading authority in international economic law. His current research is focused on how different legal systems interact with and affect each other. So, Christina, as we head into autumn and a second wave, what do you see as the key challenge for government in the next month or two? I mean, in many ways, the key challenges are even now just over the, the next week as COVID is accelerating. So. Basically, they have two ways of trying to get a handle on on the spread of COVID in the UK right now. The first is just to stop infected people from mixing with non-infected people. And ideally, you would do that with contact tracing. So you'd find infected cases and their contacts and you'd isolate them and everyone else can carry on. We're not doing that well enough. And so that's that's why you kind of got these measures of, you know, how do you stop people mixing? Do you close pubs? Do you change their opening hours? Do you stop households mixing? And then there's the kind of things of, okay, well, if we do get an infected person mixing with a non-infected person, how do you stop it transmitting? And that's where you use masks, social distancing, ventilation, meeting outdoors, and so on. And I think the key challenge for the government is how strongly do they force people not to mix while still keeping the economy alive and people on side? Because actually, you know, what we're learning is that COVID spreading through you know, social interaction. It's through people meeting up with each other, both in the home and in pubs and bars. And it's very difficult to police and you don't really want to police it. So it relies on people voluntarily complying with guidance. And so you need to take the population with you. You need people to trust you. You need people to be able to afford to isolate if they're asked to. And so there's kind of a lot of really difficult decision making to be done about how do you get that balance right between controlling the virus, keeping your population with you and also trying to protect the economy as much as you can. Okay, so that's a major piece of work to say, <laughs> at least on its own. But Pete, we're also heading into the final straight of the Brexit negotiations. What can we expect to happen in the next month or two? 
It's a good question. I think everyone would like to know the answer to that one. Um, who knows? Maybe I'm, I'm happy to take a punt. And if I'm wrong, I'm just wrong. And if I'm right, then you've heard it first on UCL COVID podcast. So first point is, I, I think there will be a deal. And I think there will be a deal because increasingly uh, on both sides, everyone is realizing that no deal would be unsustainable. And that if there is no deal in time for the end of the year, 1st of January, when the transition period ends, that then negotiations would have to continue uh, anyway, because no deal just is not a, a sustainable position to be in. Pete, is that a, it's not a sustainable position to be in because we are in the middle of COVID, or would that have happened even without COVID? Well, I mean, there has been a view around this summer that because of COVID and the massive hit to the economy, uh, for which COVID is responsible, that the effects of Brexit would sort of go unnoticed. But but I think that's just the wrong way of looking at it. But it would very much aggravate uh, what would already be quite bad effects. I mean, the way I think I look at it is that increasingly COVID is a, is a demand side shock uh, because people just can't sort of spend in the ways they would otherwise do. Uh, on on many things, uh, and uh, no deal Brexit would be a supply side shock, because normal ways of trading and importing and exporting would be heavily affected. Uh, so those two adding together, I think, would be a really very bad thing, and uh, anyone sensible would realise that. I think. Yeah, and the government haven't covered themselves in glory in terms of, you know, competent administration. So I think the, you know, the the public is is now beginning to uh, worry. Ursula, let's turn to Europe. How are the EU institutions looking at both COVID and Brexit? Well, that, that's also uh, rather interesting. Obviously, the member states themselves also face the same challenges we do here with, with COVID, and some, like like Germany, have fared better than others, um, such, such as Spain, although I'm certainly not the expert to go into the reasons for why. And the EU itself was, I suppose, rather late to act. It was criticised for being late to, to, to get in into action. And when it did, it started off particularly with things such as common procurement schemes for PPE, schemes incidentally to which the UK was invited, of course, and which, uh, the, which offer they the decided to, to decline. And I think that's possibly a gesture that's more owed to Brexit thinking than to, to public health considerations. But when the EU did get its act together, um, it was it was rather forceful. So uh, if you remember back in July, EU leaders reached a deal on a whopping 750 billion euros to reconstruct Europe after after COVID to sort of prop up the economies. And that include the rather sort of grandly titled recovery and resilience facility. And for many, it was a sort of watershed moment, if you like, um, a sort of Hamiltonian moment, even as some called it. Because it gives Brussels sort of unprecedented powers to borrow on financial markets together and hand the sums out to member states. And many were saying in the EU that such an agreement just wouldn't really have been possible had the UK been been part of it as a as a member state. Because we would have been difficult. Well, there's, there's different philosophies towards to European integration, which obviously is one of the reasons that we, um, you know, that the UK voted to leave the EU. There was never a, a great amount of love for the idea of further integration. But if you borrow together, if you take up debt together, then that requires an awful lot more um, of integration in longer term than probably would have sat comfortably with with the UK government. So yes. 
I want to look at some of the specific areas where the kind of COVID and, and, and Brexit overlap. I was thinking actually on one area of technology because, you know, test and trace is a, a big issue for us here. But but of course, test and trace is something that, you know, would needs to cover the whole of Europe. Christina, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's quite it's quite an interesting thing. So Germany probably has the best contact tracing system in Europe. And they went from the very beginning with a very localized design and they were actually helped by having quite a federalized system anyway. So states had a lot of autonomy and that's worked really well. Whereas in the UK, they went for quite a centralized approach, um, which has worked less well simply because if you're using a call center and then someone doesn't answer the phone or they give you the wrong phone number, there's literally nothing you can do about it. Whereas if you have a local approach, you can kind of knock on doors and, and interact with people that way. Technology-wise, um, most well, a lot of Europe uh, developed apps, and they used kind of standard what are called APIs developed by Google and Apple that had a lot of data privacy built in. Um, Germany actually changed its app quite early on because of privacy concerns. It kind of listened to concerns and carried on, and people kind of assumed that that we would do the same here, and we didn't. We decided to do our own bespoke app that, if you may remember, was tried out in the Isle of Wight and then they decided that they couldn't get it to work and there were too many privacy concerns and so on, and so they abandoned it. And they also kind of seemed to base their entire test and trace system on an app instead of actual contact tracing. An app only ever supports it, it can't replace it. And then, of course, they have just released the NHS app a couple of weeks ago. It's pretty good and it's based on exactly the same Google and Apple APIs that other people have been using for several months. So I think that actually is quite interesting in the context of Brexit because I think it does speak to that kind of vein of British exceptionalism that you kind of see in the government a bit, that they kind of assume that that we have to do it our own way. Um, and you've seen that in COVID. You know, you saw it when, when things were going really badly in Italy at the beginning of March. Somehow people thought it wouldn't happen here. Uta, how about the border technology? Because this is going to become increasingly important. In fact, it's already, we can see, becoming a big issue. What about, say, Kent? Yes, so of course, we've got to remember that uh, when we leave the transition period, we will just have a new border with the EU. Um, no matter what, what deal we get, um, if we get a deal, as, I, as Pete thinks we do, and um, I hope he's right. But we're leaving the single market and we're leaving the customs union, so there will be a new border. And with borders, uh, quite naturally come come frictions. And so that's uh, new customs and, and regulatory checks, certification rules, and all, all of those really complicated uh, sort of paperwork uh, and, uh, and coding systems that only the real trade wonks understand. But a lot of uh, the way about this working is because is, is down to an IT system that can manage all of this. Usually for imports and exports, data is submitted in advance and, and electronically. Um, and of course, it's significant because we just trade so much with the EU. And, and being an island, of course, the border crossing points are limited. So Kent was always going to be the crunch point. Now, I suppose the government has known this for, for a very long time, but the preparations are not, to phrase it politely, where they should be. Right. So business lists, uh, logistics, the, the whole sector, they need very clear guidance to understand what the new regulations are, what the paperwork is that they need to fill in, what the custom formalities are. And obviously, the new IT system needs to work flawlessly. And we have now had in the newest version of the 
so-called border operating model published today. I'm not a trade wonk and it's 300 pages long, so I haven't read it. But people who have say it does provide a lot more um, information to the sector. And so that's very helpful. But it is it's just simply quite, quite late and the IT system isn't up yet. It's not f- fully running and fully tested. And in addition to that, Kent is obviously interesting because we'll have an ad- additional border, if you like, with Kent. The Kent Road Access Permit, which has two funny acronyms. Yeah, people call it either CRAP or Kermit. Um, but uh, basically, the access permit means that you're trying to prevent chaos at the port by... By causing chaos somewhere else. Exactly, exactly. Because effectively, the government fear quite rightly that people won't necessarily have submitted the right paperwork by the time they reach the port. And obviously, they try to avoid uh, chaos there. So our capacity, the UK government's capacity to inst- you know, to install a system that's fully working and up and running as soon as possible after January the 1st is quite crucial. Uh, you're not filling me with a huge amount of confidence here, Uta. Uh, uh, Pete, can I turn to that other and even more disputed border, that with Northern Ireland? What arrangements are going to be in place there? Uh, good question. The uh, Northern Ireland border, of course, is uh, not sort of focused on on a single point, point uh, um, Dover-Calais, but is, uh, is, is quite a large border. Uh, and so there the issue is, is a bit different because obviously everyone wants to keep that border open. But in order to do so, the, um, the UK and the EU still need to agree on a lot of detail on how the system of trade between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland will work. And then particularly questions such as which goods uh, which are uh, exported from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, if I can use that term here, uh, are at risk of being moved into Ireland, which would then mean that EU tariffs would have to apply instead of... uh, uh, of no tariffs where they are different from UK tariffs. So on all of that, I think there's not just a technological complexity, but there's a complexity of, in fact, uh, making still quite basic agreements on, on on how this would work. I would just want to add something on what Christina said about the app, which we currently have, just to say that a scholar from, from UCL, from UCL Laws, has been very heavily involved in developing the app which was used first used in Europe and which protects privacy. This is Michael Veal, uh, and he's been saying for many months uh, uh, everywhere on the media that the UK should, should follow that same approach, and uh, he has been vindicated. So if only the government were to listen a bit better to people at UCL. So we'll send them a copy of the podcast, obviously required listening for all policymakers. Christina, how do we make and comply with uh, rules in the Brexit era? Yeah, I think the way science has informed COVID policy and how that's communicated, I think, has... Well, I can't say for sure it would be different without Brexit, but it seems to me that it's different. And I suspect that certainly early on in the pandemic, the government was listening pretty closely to its scientific advisors and followed their advice. But ever since we kind of came over the peak, I think there's been greater and greater divergence between there. And there's been quite a lot of secrecy. So, you know, they, they've kind of sidelined Sage to have the Joint Biosecurity Council, which is now apparently advising on COVID policy, but there's we don't know who's on it. We, there's no minutes about it. We have no idea of, of what the thresholds are for action, what exactly the strategy is, how they're making those decisions. They've stopped doing the daily press conferences 
the messaging has got a lot more confused to the point when there are like, you know, hundreds of jokes on the internet about different combinations of rules that you have to do in COVID. You know, I think when you start having jokes about quite serious government policy, you realise the messaging's not not working. And I've kind of seen what I think is really interesting is that the behavioural subgroup in SAGE, and you look at their minutes, they have been consistently advising that the government needs to have clear messaging to be honest, to engender trust, to create a sense of solidarity, to be very specific, to admit uncertainty, to admit mistakes. And the government basically hasn't been doing that at all. And I wonder whether that's something that's kind of a hangover of how they talk about Brexit, where it's always the rosiest possible picture is what's presented to the public. And I actually think that's quite damaging and damaging to public trust and compliance. Uta, what about the tensions between order and uh, justice and, you know, rights at the time of, uh, of this crisis? Well, I mean, you could look at it like this. In, at times of huge crises, emergencies, if you like, um, states, states face a, a very clear dilemma, right? So they need to tackle the emergency, of course, but very often they, they take actions that constrain our individual rights at that point, or even the division of powers. And But if they don't do that, then the state as such might might also well be threatened. So they are between a, a rock and a hard place. And uh, in many ways, they did obviously ha- introduce things that were previously unthinkable. For example, st- issuing stay-at-home orders or, or closing businesses. It's under normal circumstances, impossible to think, but they were fully accepted. They were even called for by by, by, by citizens in the country. But that's also a question of trust. So people need to trust that the government takes the right decisions where this is where the, the policy decisions come in that Christina has talked about. And it's also got to be done in the right way. And in the, until quite recently, there wasn't even a lot of, sort of significant ruckus about the fact that government really issued a lot of the regulations without consulting parliament, without giving parliament a chance to review the measures. Now, I think it's it, it can't be a fundamental or a fundamentally extendable principle. This right, you you have to come to, to to a point where you both come out of that crisis or at least manage it differently. And I think what we see in the UK's response to COVID is, on the one hand, that people begin to sort of question whether the government handles this one right, and that questioning might also be determined by the way they see the government handling. Brexit. So if you begin to think the government may not have a handle on this or on the other crisis, obviously that will compound into, into a bigger lack of trust. And maybe the other um, second thing is, is that sort of tendency towards executive power. Now, we've seen this with COVID, as I said, but we've seen it on Brexit, particularly the current government has consistently sought to scale back the involvement and the scrutiny, both of parliament and the court. And I think there is a certain concern here with the two things coming together that we're sliding towards an ever more executive driven style and, and actually that's what we've seen in some other european countries isn't it that the covid has been an opportunity to seize more executive power and particularly of um, orban in hungary yeah Orban is the classic example of course and there the, some of that powers has actually um, been legislated um, in, in such vague terms they could technically you know make this in, in an indefinite sort of state of affairs that's not where we are yet but i think we have seen a certain attitude in government to increasingly sideline other constitutional actors and and, and that is that is a tendency that one might want to sort of get away from um, as we 
as we try to get a handle on this crisis. Pete, this circumventing of Parliament is of real concern, isn't it, to the lawyers? No, absolutely. I think it's a it's a huge challenge to uh, not only the role of Parliament, but even the rule of law itself and the sort of balance between the different constitutional uh, actors. Um, and um, it's, in a sense, quite... I mean, in that sense, Brexit and COVID run a bit in parallel because COVID, of course, is an emergency and that kind of leads to bigger powers, greater powers being granted to the executive. But in the UK, this had already happened, of course, with Brexit, the Withdrawal Act, which is in force, has given the government huge powers to change legislation once the transition period ends. We haven't seen that that power being used yet very much because we are not yet at the end of this transition period. But in all likelihood, it, it, it will be. And it's uh, pretty paradoxical to see that uh, a campaign for leaving the European Union, which which uh, was heavily predicated on, on the slogan, uh, let's take back control and we should be making our own laws. Apparently, it's not for Parliament to make the laws very much, but for, for the executive. And uh, if you look at, for example, the current negotiations on, on the agreement with the uh, EU, in fact, the European Parliament will have a final say on this, will have to consent to the new agreement. But as currently the, the UK legislation stands, the UK Parliament will not have that say to agree to trade agreements. And, and the combination of the, of the two is really quite worrying because it, it does completely, I mean, it, I'm reinforcing what, uh, simply what Uta has been saying, but we see this uh, enormous shift to more executive power. And it undermines our reputation considerably, doesn't it? Well, what, what has been happening with with this internal market uh, bill as it's currently before Parliament and statement by a minister before Parliament that the government uh, wants to enact the ability to breach international law. We've been, I've been speaking to quite some colleagues about this and there's actually no one who can point to any other examples worldwide, even of the worst regimes, where a regime would expressly articulate in its own legislation that it's not going to comply with international norms. We know, for example, that President Trump doesn't really like international norms very much, but you will not find any kind of official legal text adopted by the US government where they proclaim that they are not going to comply with certain international commitments. So that is really very worrying and wholly unprecedented, even worldwide, I think. We're listening to, if I may say so, a slightly gloomy edition of Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. Now I'm heading for further gloomy areas, which is really to think about what kind of disruption and cooperation we might see in the new year. Christina, first of all, how would supply chain failings affect the UK's COVID response? Badly. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know how much this is in kind of public knowledge. I mean, it has been reported about a bit. But basically, one of the things that did help us in March is that, that the drug companies and hospitals and the NHS had put in a bit of a Brexit stockpile of drugs and supplies, and they used it up. <laughs> so we no longer have a Brexit stockpile, really, of, uh, of drugs or other medical supplies. And so 
when you combine that with a second wave that may last well into the new year and Brexit um, and winter flu, we could be in quite a difficult place in January. Indeed, I know that our um, vaccine production depends on the uh, the installation of a uh, vaccine fill machine, which is being supplied from uh, Germany, but which, oh joy of joys, would be caught up in the chaos. So we can't extract it. So that it, it's not just, you know, packets of pills. There are much more substantial items, which no, are and, life-saving. And, and it, I mean, if you just think about the vaccine programme, if there's a vaccine middle of next year and they want to vaccinate the whole population or even 50% of the population, it's not just about the vaccine supply, it's the supply of needles. It's the supply of staff. It's the supply, you know, all of those things in the supply chain that make that possible, including, you know, refrigeration, the cold chain, all of it. The UK, I doubt, I very much doubt, has the capacity to do that without needing international trade. And so if that all gets clogged up after after December, then, then it makes it, you know, 10 times more challenging. And dear listener, can I mention vials? Uh, the vials that vaccines go in, which are produced using a special sand, they're made in Italy. Pete, <laughs> from you, what can we expect in terms of disruption in either deal or no deal scenarios? Yeah, well, obviously, deal should be a, a bit better than no deal. Although in, in terms of immediate shock, I think the difference is overrated because even in the event of a deal, it will still mean that all the trade between United Kingdom and, and European Union will have to pass through customs and will have to be checked and uh, and there won't be customs duties, but, but we still will have checks where none exist at, at present. Um, no deal, of course, would really be very bad and I'm, I'm worried because... I think we've all been lulled into a, a bit of a sense of complacency around it. Uh, it's been talked about for so many years now. It hasn't really happened uh, yet. Uh, and, and people may think, well, you know, it, it's kind of this this thing I fear, but since for many years it doesn't happen, it probably isn't going to be this bad. Uh, and that will translate into the level of preparations and even the ability, of course, of uh, of business to prepare for for no deal is pretty limited uh, these days. So I, I, I really worry about what, what will happen on, on the 1st of January, certainly in a no deal scenario, but even, even in a deal scenario, because a lot is going to change. Well, phew, thank goodness we're all stopped up on toilet rolls. Also, to be, to be serious, there is going to be, I suspect, a much longer term impact on trust and reputation, particularly among other members of the European Union. I think so. Yes, I mean, it is. It will be hard to see because some of some of it is definitely to do with um, with those who who dominate discourse right now. So if you imagine that you have a, a different sort of government in a few years' time, or um, or some such, then there, there you know there is lots of things that can be can be can be changed. I think at the moment the difficulty is that the government doesn't seem to quite realize just how its star has sunk. So the, the foreign secretary the other day said, you know, internal market bill and the fallout from that hasn't really tarnished our reputation as an international actor. Well, it has, it has greatly and has amongst um, member states of the European Union, but also interestingly among um, electorates, a public opinion, if you look at member states, um, the EU 27, public opinion 
quite favours the EU playing hardball now in the negotiations. And that is not something that, that we started out with. I do think that trust is just a huge part of how we deal with each other internationally. It is obviously a lot about tactics and strategy and cooperation, and but you do work with those you trust. And obviously, the worst sign that you can give is if you say, well, I'm, I'm negotiating in good faith and I'm signing something, and, and then I backtrack from that in, in a matter of in a matter of months. So that that is going to be a lingering memory that that is shared um, internationally, and it will, of course, have some practical consequences. So look at the current negotiations, governance mechanisms. One of the outstanding areas for negotiation seems to have progressed quite well. But since the Internal Market Bill, the EU side now wants much stricter conditions and dispute resolution and some such because they no longer quite trust the UK to stand by its word. So, you know, we will see how it develops over the long, uh, longer term. But for the moment, at least, you know, we, we probably have lost some of the, the, the excellent reputation that we've had previously. And of course, this does have a direct impact on COVID because collaboration is absolutely essential between countries because we we are an island but we are not alone our future relies on everybody cooperating on vaccines on medicines with uh, covid so it's it's a very great concern i want to finish the program by giving you each as i sometimes do on this podcast a magic wand now this magic wand you can't magic away the uh, results of the referendum but what i want you to do with your magic wand is what one thing would help us to get through coronavirus and Brexit together? So let me start with uh, Pete. Well, I, I, I think uh, a sensible deal in the coming in the coming weeks, uh, which will still be a limit limited deal, but one which at least builds a bit of trust again between the EU and the UK and which is the basis for moving into 2021 and future years from a slightly different perspective uh, in terms of relationship one which looks again at how can we cooperate in a, in a way which is different from the UK being a member state but still cooperate with the EU in the so many areas where cooperation is needed and certainly COVID and all of its dimensions and effects need that too. Christina, what about you? What would you do with your magic wand? Do something a bit more esoteric and I would try and and reduce the nationalistic, populist kind of rhetoric and get the hope that the government embraces a bit more complexity. I feel like there's just been this kind of push towards going for the simple answer, the magic bullet solution in Brexit and in COVID, and kind of a reluctance to learn from mistakes, which I think is really dangerous and kind of acknowledging that, yes, we can learn from each other, that, yes, other countries have done better, other countries have done worse. And I kind of feel as if there's this kind of desire to always say, well, we've done it the best, we're doing it the best, never kind of going back and saying we're going to do it differently, I think is really really quite damaging and I mean even just for the vaccine you know they, they bill it as the Oxford vaccine the great British thing I'm like you know it's an international team of scientists why can't we celebrate that and not try and get a bit kind of nationalistic about it. Let's come to you last of all on this Uta what about you what would you do with your magic wand to get us through these twin crises? 
Um, so Christina has used some of my magic power. Um, so what I was going to say, um, as you make me think about this, is probably quite similar, but goes to both sides in this, I suppose, all the different sides, which is just to level with people, just stop pretending that there are black and white answers to these things. And that so Brexit is neither going to destroy this country, nor is it going to be the sunlit uplands that people have, have thought about. It's going to be difficult and tricky and um, not very good, but it's going we're going to manage it in the end. Um, and something's going to going to come out of it and, uh, and the eu is neither the the big baddie in this case nor is it you know uh, a panacea and uh, the Nobel prize incarnate it's just both sides trying to come to grips with um, a situation which i think a lot of people regret and we could have really saved ourselves um, from but that you know we'll just have to try and make the best best of and uh, the only way you're going to go about this properly is just to to own up to that well, very sensible and pragmatic uh, advice, I think, with your with your wand, all of you. So thank you to all of you. I've, I think it's been a fascinating discussion. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges and edited by the wonderful Caris Bradley. Our guests today were Dr. Uta Steiger and Professors Christina Pagel and Pete Eckhout. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, of course you would. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.